Hello, this is a free call from an inmate from the main state prison, Warren. To accept this free call, press zero. To refuse this free call, hang up or press one. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Hello, hello. This is Our Prison's The Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio with your hosts, Catherine Besteman and Leo Hilton. Today, we're talking about crime and harm with Tori Pelletier, city councilor for Portland and community organizer, and Robin Merrill, executive director of Maine Equal Justice. I'm Catherine Besteman, an abolitionist educator at Colby College. I'm Leo Hilton, and I come to this show not only as someone with lived experience in the criminal legal system, but also as a co-instructor with Catherine. For the past year and a half, we have worked together to envision community-based alternatives to our current criminal legal system. This show explores how we keep our communities safe and asks the question, are prisons the answer? We concluded our last episode by talking about accountability in relation to harm and the ways in which our criminal legal system may not be an effective avenue for accountability and repair. Today, we will be talking about the relationship between crime, harm, and accountability. We will start with a simple question. What is crime? It's weird for me to define crime because the definition that we have of it now is based on the structure, I think, of how this country was built, uh, which is on the backs of Black people and Indigenous people with a colonial mindset to oppress um, and to take. So this was harder than I thought when I was thinking about personally how to define crime. But I think for the sake of this argument, I guess my version or definition of crime can be defined as an act that by our United States definition is something that goes against a set of policies created by people with power, wealth, and privilege to oppress poor black and brown communities. That would be my definition. Ouch. <laughs> yes, with you on that. So from that framework, crime is very much a social construct. And if that's what crime is, what is harm? Yeah, so harm is interesting too, because I think of it immediately as pain in any form whether intentional or unintentional, that has some sort of negative results for the receiver, but is often not determined by the receiver and is instead determined by an outside group. So I think for me also when thinking about harm outside of, you know, like stubbing my toe or getting a paper cut or something like that, harm for me is almost always synonymous with white supremacy and with systemic racism. And so I think about physical harm from just general exhaustion that, you know, I and other marginalized identities hold um, until it literally impacts our bodies. And then I also think of it as mental and psychological harm just from the daily impacts of systemic oppression that we encounter on a regular basis and that manifests itself in employment and wealth and healthcare and housing. So thinking about harm and crime, I'm immediately thinking of it from my own personal perspective of a Black woman, a Black activist, and someone of a marginalized identity, which again is interesting because when I was asked these questions, I I don't know that I've ever defined them for myself uh, as much as I am doing now. So yeah, those are my definitions on, on crime and harm and kind of what I think about both of those. That is so powerful. And if I can just ask one more quick follow-up. 
from that framework, could you share, and, and I appreciate the fact that this is the first time we're thinking of it, because I think we're almost conditioned to not think about crime and harm separately, but that they're conflated. They're almost uh, synonymous in how we use them. So with this new thinking and sharing, what do you think is the main difference between crime and harm from your perspective? When I think about defining crime, I think of it as dependent on your own vantage point of where you're lying within, I think of like this invisible power structure that we're all involved in. So I think what is considered crime and harm, again, is from often from the vantage point of those who have been historically in power and who have wealth and privilege and opportunity. And what's interesting is that group sets the tone for how the rest of us define crime and how the rest of us talk about harm. And it's most often that these definitions of crime and harm have disproportionate impacts that are based directly on ethnicity and race and gender and ability and, and sexual orientation and identity presentation. So I think about the discussions of crime and stereotypes of crime and the criminal justice system based on lived experience. And then I think about harm and how we determine what is harmful and what is not harmful, also from a vantage point of those who have historically always been in power. So it's like this interesting thing of thinking of it personally for me as somebody, again, that is a Black person, a Black woman, um, a younger person, a marginalized identity. But my definition and determinations of harm are never really taken from me as much as they are defined for me by a outside source that is a source that has historically been in power. So, and I'm just now like, I'm blowing my own mind with that. <laughs> like, I'm just like, whoa, this is, this is a lot. I think that I just kind of worked out myself too. So thank you for that question. But yeah, that's, I think where I'm landing in the definitions of crime and, and harm and the distinction, I think, between both of them as I view them as a black woman. Thank you, Tori, for blowing our minds. This is awesome. <laughs> really, a saying what needs to be said. Uh, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Robin, how, how about you? What is crime? What is harm? And what's the difference between them for you? So I really appreciate what you shared, Tori. Um, kind of in thinking about this question myself and bringing kind of my own lens to, um, to it, I work with uh, Main Equal Justice and we're focused on increasing economic security opportunity opportunity and equity for people in Maine and do a lot of work around um, shaping laws and policies to make them more equitable, to make them more fair, to ensure that people are able to meet their basic needs and live with dignity and all the things that people deserve to live with. Um, so in thinking about this question, thinking about crime being you know, there's the kind of more technical kind of the, the laws that are created by people in power. And we can do a lot, I think, to to shift that and to change laws um, and, you know, and, and spreading and, and giving people more power over decisions that are made that impact their lives. There's lots more I could say about that. But focusing in on not kind of what um, crime is in terms of laws that are punishable by laws that people are meant to follow and and or they're punished if they don't, but thinking about instead kind of the definition of crime as being activity that whether or not it's illegal or not is just wrong, shameful, that is unacceptable, that we shouldn't tolerate um, from anyone and thinking about, you know, crimes against humanity and crime that's done that you touched on, Tori, that's done, you know, um, oppressing people and by people in power kind of making decisions 
that cause or perpetuate suffering on a large scale. And the fact that that happens all the time, um, that people, uh, decision makers and people with power make decisions. Um, And we see, you know, inequities in our, in education, housing, employment based on race and that are rooted in our country's shameful history of slavery and genocide and recognizing that really systemic racism is woven into the fabric of our society, our laws, our budgets, and that people in power, there are people in power, some people in power who really seek to divide us using racism to sell policies that shrink resources that have an impact on all of us. And I guess I just want to point out that these are decisions that are made. These are choices that we live in a, a wealthy country where nobody needs to suffer. Uh, everyone should have shelter and food and everyone can have enough. Uh, so these are intentional decisions that are made. Um, and there are policies we know to address them. So sometimes I feel like There's this sense of poverty being kind of this intractable problem that we can't do anything about. But there are, in fact, proven solutions that increase child tax credit, cut child poverty in half, um, but that expired and people aren't taking action to do anything about that. So that's where my mind went was these what what I really think could be defined as criminal acts when people in power make decisions to continue or create, exacerbate suffering that's unnecessary. And so thinking about it kind of in that larger way. Thank you, Robin. So just to just to reiterate what I'm hearing, um, crime, for, for both of you, the way that crime gets defined typically represents the interests of those in power. And what I'm hearing both of you say is the ways in which certain acts get defined as crime can then itself be harmful, right, by what's being prioritized as criminal, and I'm putting quotation marks around criminal, and what gets neglected. What, what are the harms that get neglected that are not being prioritized for attention and what instead is being criminalized in a way that may be harmful to communities on the basis of criminalizing certain kinds of things. So Robin, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about then from this vantage point, the difference between crime and harm. Do you see the social construction of crime as then itself producing harmful outcomes? That's what I'm hearing you say. Yes. I mean, is, is that, is it, should I elaborate on that? I, I mean, sure, please, I, yeah. I, I, I think it certainly does creates harm, you know, damaging folks in physical, emotional, spiritual ways that have serious repercussions for all of us. Yeah. And to the point about, you know, what we define as criminal and how that's defined and who defines it. Um, just like there's a need to address, you know, for example, criminalization of of homelessness, like people who are experiencing homelessness are punished as a result, or people who lose their children or have their children taken from them because they don't have enough resources because of decisions we've made as a society, people in power, decision makers have made that create those disparities um, and a lack of resources for people. Um, So people are punished and then they're blamed for what was actually a, a failure of our society. Thank you. Okay, so, wow, Tori, with this understanding of the difference between crime and harm, what then is accountability? So accountability is like this like ever-changing word that I have like a really interesting relationship with. I think this is the million dollar question of what is it and where is it in terms of crime and harm? Because I think if we want true accountability to me, true accountability is we need to go back centuries to when 
people that looked like me were enslaved and forced into labor to build this country. So accountability through my lens looks like reparations and it looks like restoration to original indigenous ownership of land. And it looks like decolonizing of basic human necessities in food and shelter and wealth and employment. And I think to especially in my space as a black activist and a counselor, I think what's really interesting in the word accountability is that a lot of times I think it gets tied up with the word acknowledgement. And I worry that people think that these two things are interchangeable. Like we can acknowledge all day and we can go through the proclamations and the resolutions and the land acknowledgements and the Black Lives Matter statements in terms of harm and crime. But acknowledging doesn't do anything to eradicate harm to me. And I think it's just essentially being like, okay, cool, we have acknowledged that there was harm, but we're not actually going to do anything about it. And I think even the good intentions of saying, let's move forward by being better and let's move forward with policy that's better, um, that doesn't always work for me either because I think such significant harm has been done that to move forward without amending historical harm with accountability is just perpetuating that harm again. So, you know, I again, I, I'm taken back to when I had the pleasure of presenting Leo with you and Catherine a couple of weeks ago, and I'm thinking about can accountability be crafted through policy? And I think it can in the form of an acknowledgement, but I don't think it can in the form of accountability. Because to me, accountability is we need to go all the way back and right all of the wrongs and then move forward with reparations. And I don't see us doing that um, successfully just because of how these systems operate. I see us going forward with policy to say like, we're gonna make sure that maybe that doesn't happen again, but I don't see black and indigenous individuals feeling like they um, were were supported and made whole by the harms of, of the past. So I have a weird relationship with where accountability is. And I think, for me, it it really lies in transfers of power um, and reparations, uh, full stop, before we can really talk about anything else. Look, love that. So brace yourself for a big question. What does repair look like to you? What does actual reparations look like? Because if I hear you right, accountability is addressing harm, but it can't just be the symptom of harm. It has to be dealing with the root cause, which is the history, the intergenerational nature of these traumas and of these harms that are built into our system. So looking at that deep type of repair, what do you think that can look like? Oh my gosh. So that's, that's, that's the question. It's a hard question. Um, especially like we're getting at the end of the year. So I'm just like running on nothing, but, but just like caffeine at this point. But I think reparations and true justice again, for me is the transfers of, of power. And I'm thinking again, like we have so many white individuals in leadership positions deciding how much housing and land should be allocated to low-income individuals, most of whom are marginalized identities. And I think even we're seeing this perfectly at, at the state house in the legislative uh, body. We have white non-indigenous state representatives making determinations on tribal sovereignty. And we have black and brown people that are being pushed out of neighborhoods that they grew up in because of gentrification. So I don't know that true justice can be achieved until we have indigenous governance over public lands. Like that to me is full reparation. And until we 
actively provide financial reparations and payment to Black Americans whose ancestors were forced into labor and whose descendants lost all opportunities of building generational wealth. Like that to me looks like actual payment to the descendants of our enslaved ancestors who were, again, forced to create this country. So I think until we have that we can keep saying like justice forward, equity forward, and we can say all of these like buzzwords over and over again, but it really doesn't mean anything. And these systems of white supremacy, I think will just continue to do what they do best until we can actually say we are transferring the power that we so desperately hold as this historically white, heterosis male uh, population. We are transferring that to native ideology into into black ideology i feel like we we can't really feel like we're having reparations in a fair and authentic way i think until until power is transferred and then back to the beginning of the circle i don't ever think power is going to be transferred because power is what makes this country run and oppression is what makes this country run so i think as much as i i want to be optimistic about that I don't know that we'll ever get there. I think, well, again, we can do a ton of policy to try and advocate, but financial reparations and transfer of uh, land ownership to full indigenous government, I'm not sure is something that we're ever gonna do. I can hope for it, but I think that's where I land in terms of justice and reparations from my lens. Thank you, Tori. Um, I, I love how you're shifting the conversation to um, historically rooted intergenerational systemic harms and keeping our focus there, like insistently keeping our focus there. These are the massive foundational harms on which our entire society is built. And so what I'm hearing from you is the need to, to go there, like not just take accountability for it, not just acknowledge it, but actually do the hard work of some sort of transformative justice initiative which as you say, is never gonna actually happen in the full, perhaps the full way that it that it needs to, um, but that we need to start talking and thinking about what that could look like. What I'm not hearing you say is use prisons. What I'm not hearing you say is the best response to harm is incarceration. For you, the best response to harm is movements towards equity, towards actual justice and towards accountability in the form of, of actually minimizing harm through investments in community, through reparations for past harms. So Robin, now, now coming to you, um, what is accountability for you in relation to the way that you see crime and harm and the difference between them and where they overlap? Well, what you shared, Tori, re resonates, and um, and I think there there's a lot more kind of thinking we should do about um, that reparations are in order, and um, and thinking about how to transfer power um, and uh, and disrupt and shift like clear power imbalances that exist, um, and that because of the work that I do, it's it's often frustrated, frustrating because we work in systems that are so fundamentally flawed um, and change is incremental, um, but feels um, worthwhile nonetheless in terms of continuing to try to make and take steps forward. Um, so I think there are steps we can take to try to um, be a state, be a place where people have a say in the decisions that shape their lives, um, that they're part of decision-making. Um, and I know, you know, uh, 
we do what we can to try to in, so try to ensure that that's happening in terms of decisions that are made by the legislature in Augusta. Um, that uh, and to your point, the the point about the legislature and how there is so much work that needs to happen in terms of that body being representative of of a people, and we're making baby steps, I think, um, in that direction. But it's also thinking, yeah, about who is who's getting elected, who's making those decisions, and then who's at those tables and being listened to and heard when decisions are being made, um, thinking about accountability that we can try to build into our processes in terms of making laws. Um, a couple of years ago, a law passed to put racial impact statements in place for the legislature so that committees are looking at and thinking about the impact, um, uh, racial impacts before passing a law, and that's still getting um, refined and implemented um, and certainly isn't going to um, fully address what we're talking about, but I think there are changes that we can make to try to create, build more accountability into um, the systems <laughs> that, we're, that we're operating in. Um, and thinking about accountability lying with people, you know, who are making decisions. Um, and so also like holding those folks accountable um, for the decisions that they're, that are being made. Um, and, uh, and that is, I think, incredibly important. Uh, and and we want to keep kind of just thinking about how we're kind of lifting up and holding um, policymakers, decision makers accountable um, and ensuring that they're representing our collective interests and addressing and alleviating human suffering to the extent that that is possible. So Robin, can I, can I push you a little bit on that then? Yeah. When holding um, policymakers accountable, holding legislators accountable, I mean, what we heard from Tori was some some like really specific um, ways that accountability in her in her understanding can be put into practice. So I want to push you on the same point. What does holding policymakers and legislators accountable look like to you? What does that actually consist? How do we do that? <laughs> like what what needs to happen? Uh, so so one I think is just engaging. I think ensuring that people are um, engaged, aware of, um, and participating in the process. Uh, is really important so that um, people who are making decisions are hearing directly from people and um, and that we're and that they're ultimately not, if we're if we're effectively getting information out to people then hopefully um, folks who aren't representing the best interests of their constituents aren't getting um, elected um, and when they're making decisions that aren't in the best interests of their constituents, that we're lifting those up, that we're making sure that folks are aware of um, the decisions that they're making. Um, I mean, there are small things that we try to do um, in terms of asking uh, folks who hold office to to make certain pledges around, you know, really take it, being proactive and addressing, working to address inequities in their um, in their decision making, and then I think it's also then holding them accountable in terms of their votes and the decisions they make. So it's not just words or platitudes of saying, you know, I stand for um, equity, but then it's really holding people accountable when when it comes down to the decisions they make and shining a light on, you know, when when they're making decisions that don't fit with what they've, you know, what they're holding out or claiming to be the case about what they stand for and what their values are. Thanks. And so what I'm what I'm hearing is accountability for you really does have to be something that takes place through the legislative process, through the systems that we have in place, through which our rules are made, 
um, you know, through which laws get passed and through which we govern ourselves. So sort of institutional, uh, formal, uh, structural, um, like um, almost constitutionally based legal structures. That for you is where accountability is lodged and what we should be leaning into making that work, but work for more people, not just those who hold power. And I think there are all kinds of ways to, from the out, from working kind of within it to being outside of it, of ways to lift up and push back against it. But that um, until we disrupt and create a new system, this is what this is what we're this is what we are all operating within, and these decisions have significant impact directly on all of us. Um, so uh, it feels incredibly important to be engaged and to do what we can to make. Um, to hold decision makers accountable and to try to make our system work better and be more inclusive um, and to make, uh, for example, our legislature, we focus a lot there um, at Meaningful Justice, but to ensure that that is, you know, that decision makers are representative of their constituents and are actually um, looking out for the best interests of their constituents and proactively looking to address and alleviate suffering. Um, because we definitely see examples of where there's opportunity to take action and to do something and um, people don't. Um, so a failure of action is just as bad as, as in some cases folks acting to, um, or maybe it's not just as bad, but I also, I want to hold up like the failure to act when they're suffering and when somebody has the ability to do something about it um, is, is wrong. And <laughs> you could argue is criminal. Uh. Yes. So, Robin, Tori, thank you. These are the conversations we need to be having, right? So address the topics of crime, harm, like we did today, oppression, varied identities, racism, and inequity and disparity and power and how that operates to perpetuate harm without being designated as crime. We need repair and reparation. We need to move past acknowledging harm and actually moving into doing something meaningful about it. Good intentions are not enough. Through justice is actually a transfer of power and a meaningful empowering of marginalized people and populations. That yes, change is incremental, but worth engaging in. We need to take those steps, encourage people to get involved in the processes that exist while having the courage to vision what does not yet exist, but that what needs to exist in order to uplift those voices and bring people in, right? Bring people into this process, challenge our legislators to actually follow through on what they say they're going to do. And we as a state can actually be intentional about the identities of who we are electing to office to center those voices that we know need to be centered. So thank you both so much for engaging in this conversation. For those listening, please uh, join Marian Anderson next week for Voices of the Directly Impacted on Justice Radio. And in the meantime, Corey, can you please offer some action steps for our listeners? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much to both to you and Catherine uh, for having me. So to get involved, you can contact Maine Equal Justice uh, to engage in advocacy at the legislature. You can also contact me on Instagram. My Instagram name is at Counselor Victoria uh, to get involved in advocacy at the 
uh, city council level and please join our council meetings and especially our committee meetings, significant or specifically uh, our health and human services and public safety committee, because we talk all about community care and what we can do to make Portland as safe as possible. These meetings are the second Tuesday of the month at 530. Feel free to reach out to me for the link and I would love to have you there. Thank you both so, so much for joining us today. With thanks as well to bluesman Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series, and to Emma Reynolds, our sound engineer. We are Justice Radio.